This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, Jerry and Tracy, and uh, we're back a little earlier than you probably expected us. Yeah, I'm just as surprised as you guys are. <laughs> <laughs> the reason that we decided to have this uh, earlier than normal release is I did an interview last night uh, with Keith Linder. Now, this has been set up for about three weeks, and I had no idea it was going to be as fascinating as it was. Good. Keith had sent me some messages earlier in the month, and he told me that he had a book coming out, and you know, he started telling me some background on it, and then I started researching it, so that was pretty fascinating. Uh, just finding out that Ghost Adventures had been to the house, and not many people can say that. It was no. a big enough story where Zach and him thought it would be mm-hmm. worth going out to. Then uh, there were some discrepancies between what Ghost Adventures had and uh, Keith Lender and his girlfriend didn't like the way they were portrayed on the shows. And then there was a little bit of beef. So I like that aspect. But the long and short of it is he came on and it's not really a typical interview. He's basically taken an hour or so to tell his story of what happened. And I thought it was completely fascinating. And rather than just put it on the end of uh, our next episode, because I've got a lot of good guests coming up, I thought this was a good standalone story of its own. So rather than just try to keep stretching these things out, we would just have an episode in the middle of the week. And uh, so we're going to tell you a quick story about Squire's Castle up in Cleveland, well, right outside Cleveland, Ohio. And then we're going to... Uh, play you his story and like i said this is uh completely fascinating i think you guys are going to get a a big kick out of this one yeah you guys are going to enjoy it for sure all right so let's jump it right into this no commercials no itunes stuff nothing tonight it's just straight up fun okay so squire castle uh and this is a story i had just heard about and Mm -hmm. it was cool enough to where i thought it needs to be told, uh, and then it's a shorter story, so it worked out good for tonight. But it's just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. It's a place that they call North Chagrin, or it could be Chagrin, it's spelled with a C, but North Chagrin Reservation. Uh, there's a castle known as Squire's Castle. It's been abandoned for about 100 years, and of course it's haunted, or we wouldn't be talking about it. It's been abandoned for 100 years? Yep. It's owned by a park system up in like a Metro Parks oh, system wow. owns it, and they they bought it back in the nineteen uh, twenties. Oh, really? And Thinking they might someday do something with it? I don't know what they. I think that's just they own the land and everything mm-hmm. there, and I guess I guess it's just. Oh, cool. that'd be cool to own a castle. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> now this thing technically is not a castle. Oh. It's called a castle, and it kind of is a castle. But we'll get into those details, and you'll see where we're at. There's a gentleman by the name of Figus B. Squire. Figus. Never heard that name before. Me either. F-E-A-G-U-S. Figus B. Squire, he was born in England, 
1850, and he moved to the U.S. with his parents when he was 10 years old. Now, Squire was one of these self-starter type guys, and it wasn't going to take him long to make a name for himself. In the 1880s, he got his first big break when he joined Standard Oil of Ohio as a co-manager. Oh, nice. His career kind of took off from there, and he became very successful and very wealthy. His biggest accomplishment was creating the first oil carrier wagon, which allowed oil to be shipped over land for the first time. Oh, it was dang, only, that was him? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess technically, like, you see all these tankers from yeah. Thornton's and Speedway and all that. I guess that was kind of his original idea. That's before, very cool. Before that, if you didn't move it by boat along the river, yeah. it didn't happen. Right. In the 1890s, he started... Um, reminiscing about you know his early days his first 10 years when he lived in england and all the cool castles that he remembered as a kid so he decided i got enough money i'm going to build me one so he buys 525 acres and uh, he starts putting these plans together for this huge estate he's going to have a castle on it but he hadn't started that yet The, the first thing that they started building was the gatehouse the gatehouse is what is now known as Squire's Castle. Oh, what if he had a moat? No, he didn't have a moat because there was... Oh, (laughs) that'd be cool, right? (laughs) He was going to name this estate, by the way, River Farm. That was going to be the name River Farm? Yep, River Mm -hmm. Farm. Okay. Now, keep in mind, this thing was only going to be a gatehouse, but it was huge. It had three stories, several bedrooms, a living room, a kitchen, a breakfast porch, it had a, uh, what you call a hunting room, where he had all of his hunting trophies and, oh, and nice. heads and stuff that were put on the wall, and it had a library. He spared no expenses when it came to putting this thing together. I mean, it had all kinds of woodwork. It had uh, lead glass windows, which apparently was pretty expensive back then, because that's the real heavy, almost like a crystal. Oh, wow. Type, like leaded crystal. Um, apparently, though, it was taking a long time to build this construction was really slow on this so he in the meantime while it's being built he used it as a summer retreat and when they would use it as a summer retreat they would stay in the gatehouse even though construction was still going on uh they had problems because uh with the thick walls they had trouble getting internet (laughs) (laughs) i made that up i know you did but but somewhere during the time they can't get out on their cell phones either can they <laughs> you brought that one up. Not I know, me. I know. I caught you first. So, sometime during this painstaking process of this thing taking forever to be built, he lost interest, I think, in living in the countryside. Well, Jesus, how long did it take to build? Well, I don't know, but I think part of the problem uh, wasn't just the fact that it was taking a while to be built. Um, his wife had issues with it. She didn't like the idea of living in the country. She wanted to live in the city. Um, it's not like Green Acres a little bit. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. This this is not making sense to me. Well, but he he didn't even finish completely building no, the gatehouse. And he didn't even start the main castle. They were going to build a main castle. He never even started that or a bunch of other projects on there. So he wasted his money. Well, I guess he had plenty of money he could waste. So here's what ended up happening, though. He told his wife about this, and, uh, you know, he was going to have this big estate and all this stuff, and they were going to do that, and then they, she would come up and visit, and she would spend some time in the gatehouse. Well, she started having these nightmares, and these nightmares were that while they were living there, that these animals or monsters 
would come from the woods and mm-hmm. kill her and her children. Oh, wow. So, like I said, they stayed, they started spending time there during the summer, like a summer retreat. And when she would come and spend the night there or spend the week there or whatever the deal was, uh, it, it got worse. So the nightmares just kept getting worse, kept getting worse. So she only had the nightmares when she was there? Is no, she had had them beforehand, but when she got there and they eventually moved in there. Oh, she's just continually It just got them. continually worse. Wow, that's sad. Yeah, so the the more she was there, the less sleep she got. And because of her sleep, sleep deprivation and stuff, she started becoming insane. And at that point in time, she started really thinking, consumed with the fact that monsters and stuff were going to get her. So she came up with her own little tradition. Every night, she would take a red lantern and walk around the border of the estate where the woods were. Mm-hmm. So she would walk all around the clearing, all through the, the corners or the uh, the out tracing of the woods. And she thought that would keep the, the animals or whatever monsters that were going to attack her back. And that was keeping her family safe by her doing that. She did that at night? She did it at night. Dang, I'd be scared to do that <laughs> if she was thinking all that stuff. This went on for months, and her husband tried to convince her, look, we're safe, there's there's no issues out there, but obviously she had some mental illness, and she couldn't be convinced of that. Now, it's said that she is the ghost that haunts Squires today, and how did she get to be a ghost? Well, legend has it that Mrs. Squires um, hated the hunting. Mm-hmm. And he had a hunting room. He had all this trophy room we talked about a little bit. And that was down in the basement. And one night, as she was basically going around with her lantern, she was going around the house also. So she made her mm-hmm. right way around the outskirts, and then she's in the house. She goes down into the basement, and you can imagine it was dark down there. It's 1880s. There's yeah. really probably no not much electricity if there was any. So she goes down there, and sometime during the the course of her being in this room with the lantern, something spooked her. She either saw the reflection of the lantern in one of the heads or something he had down there or whatever the deal was, but something scared her. She ran out of there really fast, ran up the steps and out, and during the course of this, she fell and broke her neck and died. Oh, man. Mr. Squires found her body, and... Obviously, he was very distraught. He blamed himself for what happened, and he was, uh, I guess, just in deep depression over what he did, and he immediately ceased construction on the rest of the place, and he never came back. So it wasn't the monsters outside. It was a stupid game room. In reality, that's what ended up happening. Oh, So man. he filled the basement up with uh, the, the basement room that he had. He filled it up with concrete. He moved back to the city, and he never returned. He uh, retired from Standard uh, Oil of Ohio in 1909. 1922, he sold the property, and uh, he died in 1935. Oh, man. So he sold it in 1922. In 1925, the um, the city or the state or whatever that is, they actually contained ownership of it, and they've had it ever since. I wonder what happened to the kids. I don't know. It didn't say anything about that. But as for the ghosts, people claim that they see a red light in the window of Squire's Castle. And people also claim that they can see a red lantern moving along the outside of the property at nighttime. Due to her insanity, she never moved out. 
And in fact, she probably doesn't even realize she's dead. So she's having she has to endure this crazy, awful feeling even in death. That would be my guess. Wow. That's really sad. Now, as usual, we like to tell you that's the story. But there's also, um, I guess, a little bit of folklore in there because what I found out by doing a little more research on this story is that some of it cannot be true. Damn it. Every time you get me with this story. I know it. Because what happened was, first and foremost, uh, the castle is still there today. You can actually go look at it. But And there was a hunting room and a trophy room, but it wasn't in the basement. It was, whatever was down there was filled in with concrete, but it wasn't a hunting room because the hunting room was still there. I don't think the animals and stuff are still there, but so that part of the story is false. Yeah, I was kind of wondering, why would he have in the basement? If that's something he's proud of, why, you know what I'm saying, when people come Well, in? because she didn't like it, so it was a good oh, way of kind of so keeping it away. Did. Okay, gotcha, but it wasn't there anyway, so it don't no, matter. No, so it didn't matter. And the other kind of big part of this is she didn't die on the property. She died actually several miles away from like more of a natural cause, not falling and breaking her neck. So that that whole story, that part of the legend, when you look into the facts, can't be true. Dang, I wish you weren't a liar. But the, but people do do still see things up there like that. So it's just not her apparently. Or that, it, that can be confusing. It could be. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that was the uh, story. I thought it was a cool little story. It is a cool story. And it was perfect just to lead into what we're doing. So mm-hmm. so anyways, I'm not going to waste a lot of time because this interview um, slash story is fairly long, but it's interesting from start to finish. And I love the fact that he gets all in Zach's stuff because I'm not a big Zach Baggins fan anyway. Mm-hmm. I think he's a big showman. Rather than um, true life, looking out for the paranormal. So yeah, really. I think he gives a bad. My personal opinion, he gives a bad name to uh, paranormal investigators. Oh so dang! You don't get. You know, it's like I said to somebody earlier today. You don't get possessed every time you walk into a property. Come on. Yeah, I think that where you at a little bit. Because you know, well, <laughs> well, it's just a, you know, we talked to Grant uh, Wilson a couple of weeks ago, and like he was saying, you know, you can go to these properties and spend a lot of time. And come up with nothing. Yeah. Zach and him can go to a place for five hours and they got an hour's worth of TV show. Mm-hmm. And I just I just don't believe that mm-hmm. that happens like that. Nope. You heard it here, folks. That's right. You did hear it here. And you're <laughs> going to hear it in a minute when <laughs> when Keith tells you that they only spent, you know, I'm not going to tell you how long, but they spent less time there than you would probably imagine. Uh-huh. So, and I don't know if it's that way for every one of their shows, but it was that way for this one. So. Okay. All right, guys. Uh, let's listen to Keith Linder. All right, guys, I got a special treat for you tonight because uh, this gentleman reached out to me a a couple months ago, and I started looking into it a little bit, and we decided it would be best to have him on the show because he has a super fascinating story that you guys are going to love. Hopefully, um, you'll enjoy this. Even though he didn't enjoy it during it was going, it was time it was uh, going on and happening to him. I want you to welcome to the show, Mr. Keith Linder. Keith, how are you doing tonight, brother? Uh, pretty good, hanging in there, Jerry. Thanks for uh, having me. It's no problem, Keith. Let me let me touch a little bit and set this up for you, and then I'm going to turn it over to you to tell your story. You move into a house, you and your girlfriend, 2012. All kinds of for lack of a better term, hell breaks loose. 
the typical poltergeist type paranormal type things people know you know doors shutting closing sounds uh stuff like that i know one of the first things you guys experienced was hearing a uh, like a child's cough from upstairs and you guys didn't have any children and this things just got crazy after that i don't want to spoil it by going into a lot of details but you know you guys get in there and all this happens and it leads all the way uh, to the point of you've written written a book now that, that just came out and you've got a documentary on this thing. You've had ghost adventurers. Uh, Zach and the, the crew came out. It's been a very rocky last five years. And if you could, I wanted you to kind of tell us your side of the story of what's happened. Uh, yeah, once again, like I said, thanks for uh, having me. Um, but yeah, you hit it right on the nose, of course, the word Rocky uh, story, because the last five years have, um, yeah, it's been kind of uh, rocky, especially 2012 to 2014. And it's going to sound sort of cliche or Hollywood-esque when I say this, but it's the 100% truth. Um, me and my girlfriend moved into a house uh, May 1st of 2012. Beginning of spring, it's warm, we get a house. We had been together at that time about two years. <clears throat> and we moved into a house in beautiful home. I think it was built in 2005. And the day one, we, I mean, we didn't even have time to even move in furniture because we picked up the keys and did the paper thing signed the papers and um the owner left and there we are sitting on the floor trying to get a layout of the house and yeah we hear a kid cough and the interesting thing about this kid cough and how this transpired jerry is we're both talking and all of a sudden there's this third voice that's come out of the air and it's a kid cough, and we both pause as we're conversating, and we look at each other and like, was that a kid cough? We asked each other the same exact question word for word. And you're right, we have no kids, the house is empty, the power's not even on, nothing's on. So um, it echoed pretty good, and it came from upstairs, but, but nowhere were we thinking ghosts or poltergeists. I mean, we thought... At the very best, we misheard something. It had to have come outside. But wow, that's a weird, good kid cough to have come outside. But we shrugged it off. And like other instances where people have had this type of activity, you move in or you live in a house for a while. And we started noticing items missing. Um, items like silverware, uh, my car keys, her jewelry, and we're asking each other questions as, hey, have you seen my car keys? Or, hey, I could have swore we have more knives and forks than this. Or, hey, honey, have you seen my earrings or bracelet? And this is about a month or two in. And these things, and I'm talking about these spirits, is really kind of interesting because we ignored all that. It's kind of weird, but you really have nothing to go on at that point. It's just interesting and you're still moving so maybe your brain is telling you i must have lost these items during the process of moving well finally the realization came in where we're watching tv one night sitting side by side me and my girlfriend on the couch and there's this about four foot tall plant that she has by the entertainment center 
and um, Jerry it levitates off the floor, does a straight up off the floor, a few inches, mind you, and does a 360-degree turn, spin, relatively fast, and kills over and falls in front of both of us while we're watching TV. So we both saw it at the same time. This is no, hey, honey, I just saw the plant fly, or hey, honey, I just saw the plant levitate. Um, so we were both there, and we get up from our couch, and once again, we thought we were a prank. It was the prank of the century. We thought we were being punked or neighbors, and I'm looking for wires. I'm looking for a remote control. I'm looking for a hidden camera. Um, nothing's given me that suspicion except for the fact that a plant just levitated. And it's been downhill all from that point on because it seemed like that was the moment either it got bored with us shrugging the other things off or it was just time to escalate things up a notch and get our flat-out attention and remove all sort of doubt because there's no sort of doubt once you see a plant or anything levitate. Plants don't levitate. They just don't do that. And, um, yeah, sort of the, the 2012 through uh, 2014 um, came the loud banging, I, I believe it was a, a noise phenomenon associated with Portuguese activity where we were hearing loud bangs at night uh, while we were sleeping and then come the objects being thrown like pottery like a bar stool like um, your iron or ironing board or your books on the bookshelf and at that phase Jerry um me and my girlfriend, it's a beautiful house. We've come to the conclusion, okay, we got something here. It's borderline looking like it's not friendly, but it could be a kid spirit because the only resource we could leap to at that time was the internet. And the internet was our friend as to how to deal with this. So we're trying to have the house blessed uh, smudging and saging was recommended. Um, reciting proverbs and psalms uh, from the Bible, or leaving your Bible displayed openly, either on the coffee table or lamp table. And so we're trying all these different things that our friends and family and the internet is telling us to do, while at the same time reaching out to the local clergy in and around the neighborhood to bless the house. And it's ratcheting up the activity. It doesn't seem to quell it. It seems to um, increase it. And at that phase, um, that's when things started getting darker. Let me ask you this, Keith. D during this time when, when you first started trying all these different remedies that you were getting uh, offline and through friends and stuff, were you guys a, a, a religious group of people at that time? Or was this something you just decided, hey, maybe it takes this? Uh, we were not religious, meaning that we go to service every weekend or, or, or Wednesday, but we were spiritual, and, you know, I grew up in the church, my girlfriend grew up in the church, um, but by no means were we, you know, so-called religious in the sense that, I mean, obviously we had Bibles in our house, but these were Bibles we had either tucked away or in a, in a closet somewhere, but it seemed like this thing had a negative, uh, or did, it did have a negative reaction 
to our religious display of trying to rid the house of it because it would take our sage sticks. I mean, mind you, we, I never heard of sage until this happened. So I'm going to a botanical store buying <clears throat> white sage and they're about six to 12 inches long and I'm smudging, but I got to go to work every day. I got to make a living. I come back home. The house is upside down, furniture's upside down, couches and love seat are turned up on their heads. The kitchen cabinet doors are all open. In my office, written on the wall, Jerry, is an upside down cross, an introverted cross with sage ash. And either somewhere nearby, either on the floor, or on the computer desk, or on the bookshelf where the sage stick was originally uh, was when I left the house that morning, it's half a sage stick. Okay, so um, looking closer to the black markings and what it was used, it used the ash. I don't know how it applied it, but it applied it. And the ash from the sage stick is now uh, an upside-down cross or the 666s and other things that were shown on uh, Ghost Adventures. So let me ask you this. When you guys moved into this house in 2012, you said you think the house was built right around 2005. That's a relatively new house. Normally, uh, these type of things don't happen there. Did you do any research on the land to see if there was possibly something going on there before the house was built on it? Yeah, and that's a good question because that's one of the advice given off the Internet and friends and paranormal teams. You know, you start to, okay... House history time. And it's a relatively young house, so you're thinking the trail can't be that cold on this house. And the city of Bothell, where the house was uh, located, um, nothing suspicious about the land except I live in a specific northwest, and all this used to be densely populated Native American territory. Um, but nothing sticking out like a sore thumb as to, aha, this is it. Um I researched and looked to see if, you know, had a death occurred in the house? No. Um, I went back and followed up with the owner and asked him if anything nefarious. Uh, No. I talked to neighbors, asked them were they having any activity. Um, No, but going back to the day we moved in and loading couches and furniture and mirrors and all that, you know, there's always one neighbor who watches every house in the neighborhood. <laughs> and I remember when me and my friends were loading up the house that we were moving in and we was on our driveway having a beer. Here comes this guy with his dog and he's walking over and he introduces himself. And I knew he, he I knew by his facial expression, ah, he's that guy who watches everything in the neighborhood. And he introduced himself and he's like, oh, so you the guys that... Uh, just bought this house. I just moved in, right? I'm like, yeah, we're just moving in today. And he's like, wow, this house could never stay occupied. He said, this house is always um, on the market. But he told me this like on day three or four of living there. And I did not put two and two together until way later because when we got the power switched over to our name and my girlfriend's name and she would call me at work and say, Hey, Keith, I got the power switched over to my name. Interesting conversation with the customer service agent, though. She said this house has had a previous tenant a year or six months ago, and um, they're always doing, you know, 
we change your names. And but those things you ignore early on, but they come they stick in your mind two years later. And you say those are little signs that hey, this house has a characteristic of its own, has a story to tell. So you touched on the fact that you're in the uh, Pacific Northwest, and, and I don't know if we've mentioned it yet or not. Uh, Bothell is right outside of Seattle, correct? Correct, yeah. It's about 20 minutes uh, north of uh, Seattle, give or take. Okay, so you you mentioned that you go to work every night. you got to make a living. Uh, you were an IT guy. Uh, yeah. So you eventually, after all this stuff, uh, going on in the house, you eventually decided to set up some cameras and stuff. Tell me what led to that incident. Yeah, so uh, I'm, a, I'm an IT guy, and um, I'm talking to family. You know, my brother, I'm telling him, hey, dude, you're not going to believe this, but a couch just slid across the room, or we got dancing plants, or the lights go off and on. And he's like, hey, it would be kind of cool if you can get that on, on uh, video because – until you do, nobody's really going to believe you. And he was half right. The other half, he just wanted to see it because he thought it was cool. But he was half right because some local paranormal teams in the area would not respond or come to our house unless we presented video because we're, we're telling them the truth, me and Tina. We have no reason to lie. These, this, these things are happening. But they're thinking that's too good to be true. There's no house on earth that could be that active. So if you set up cameras in around your house, catch something, anything, send it to us. We'll look at it, evaluate it, and we might come over. So, yeah, you're right. And then I start buying the, you know, the Wi-Fi motion sound detection cameras, and I started erecting them in the most active rooms in the house. Um, But one thing that I didn't know then that I know now is – that can make the activity worse by installing cameras. And also, um, poltergeists are next to nearly impossible to get on video, let alone camera, because the poltergeist um, lives by spontaneity. They're unpredictable. And if I had a bar stool that was moving, doing 360s on Tuesday night, every Tuesday night, I can almost set my clock to it, but the day I put a tripod camera in front of that bar stool to watch it or hope that it would move, it wouldn't move anymore. Something else would. Something else behind the camera or not in the uh, peripheral view of the camera. So it became a cat and mouse because the more cameras I bought, it would start taking them. Some it destroyed. And by destroyed, I don't mean like break in half like you and me would break a camera with our bare hands. I mean, breaking it almost down to the powdery substance. You come back and there's just that left of the camera. Uh, others it would take and then it would just manipulate the rest of them. I mean, you're talking about constantly uh, refiguring, configuring cameras um, that be left alone for an hour or two or a day and all of a sudden that camera's having issues that you can't explain so yeah it became um it became a catch-22 uh damn for doing damn for not doing you did get some pretty good videos though i know on your your youtube page i've seen some videos of um you know 
things. I've seen you walking in and, and actually showing all the cabinets and stuff open. I've seen uh, a case of like the ironing board and stuff like that getting knocked yeah. over. And so you did obviously have some success on catching some things. Yeah, and that's and that's the part about the the motion and the IT because I would get email alerts um, and it would say, "Hey, activity is going on at home." Um, I used to call my girlfriend and say, "Don't go home, something's going down," or "Meet me there." But if you get there before me, wait. Don't walk into the house. And you're right. And I learned um, early on, and I'm an IT guy, but and then we and, and documentation is what we do in IT. It's just, it's just the nature of the beast, but. I knew it was important to document everything as to date and time, when it occurred. So, yeah, a lot of the videos you see are me coming in, um, doing a panoramic, if you will, of the kitchen cabinet doors open, chairs and whatnot pulled out, love seat, all that stuff, the upper stairs, bedroom. Um, some cameras did catch uh, the ironing board flying across the room. Uh, plants being thrown. I got a few loud bangs. I mean, those those are what I call lucky. I was just lucky, you know. And then I was even more lucky to back them up and save them uh, onto uh, YouTube because eventually, sooner or later, the hard drives will start going missing as well as the camera or the SD card in the camera. So, um, yeah, it was just to build up and show individuals because we didn't know what a poltergeist was when this was happening, we had to get educated. You know, there are people who, um, you know, follow the paranormal religiously and this is what they do. Uh, we had to learn it, uh, I guess on the cuff because it's happening around us. So there was a steep learning curve about what's the phenomena we're experiencing. You know, somebody said poltergeist. I'm like, that rings vaguely familiar to me. Where have I heard that word before? And I think to the 1985 Poltergeist movie. I mean, that's that's just, that's where my brain goes. But then I look at that movie and I'm like, you said that's what we got? <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that doesn't sound fun. I mean, it's not fun. So, so, yeah, then I started reading and reading on more and more about Poltergeist. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's... That's the that's the characteristic straight up. Well, you know what's what's odd though, in in most poltergeist um, hauntings, there's usually an adolescent somewhere in the house. Yeah, yeah. Usually, and um, that's an excellent point because that was. I mean, a lot of investigators have been to the house. Some good, some bad. Um, but I had um, some guys from the UK parapsychologist Steve Mara and the more I started reading about poltergeist you're right 90% of poltergeist cases involve some sort of agent either an adolescent child or teenager but, but Steve led me in a direction there are those 10% or maybe even 5% of cases where the, the poltergeist is known as called a landlocked poltergeist meaning it could either be um the land underneath the house, the energy in the area, or something transpired into the house, transpired in the house that sort of got frozen, if you will. The energy got trapped. Um, so at that stage, that's what we were thinking. It's that it's that five percent of Portuguese activity that happens once every fifty years, where there's not a lot there's not a lot of data on it, and most researchers and organizations are 
unfamiliar with it, so it gets overlooked. It's very, it's very easy to overlook it because you're right. Most people look for the age because I can't tell you how many times people kept looking at me and Tina. Okay, one of you guys is the the agent, and we'll tell them. Listen, that that would be true, and I would want to believe you. That being true, meaning me and Tina or one of us is the agent, but you're forgetting one thing. Um, we never had activity prior to moving here, and we did finally catch up to a previous tenant in the home who had similar activity. And it took a, it took two years to find her, and this is uh, well documented in my book, uh, the, the Bothell Hell House, of how I was able to find a previous tenant. And it took me two years to find her because, once again, going back to people asking, hey, about the land, about the city, about the neighborhood, the question is going to be asked, well, what about the previous tenants? And I found her, and she told me, I didn't have to tell her much. I just told her, hey, my name is Keith Lunder. I live in the house you used to live in. We're having some kind of weird stuff going on. At that time, we were having posters catching fire, Bible burnings wall writings but I didn't tell her none of that I just said we're having some weird stuff going on and she told me that house was a living hell for her and her family and then she told me why and the top three things that they experienced were the top three things we were experiencing without me even educating her on what we were experiencing she said yeah we got the hell out of there we were there six months and it was a living hell for it it turned our life uh, upside down as a matter of fact it's interesting that you call in or reaching out to me now because me and my husband, we just got back together. And the reason why we fell out was because of that house. And and that to me, and, that, and that's the thing that sort of breaks up the, the adolescent theory of, or me and Tina being the agent, because like I said, the activity was there six years before we moved there. She wasn't the previous tenant before us. She was one of the original occupants of the house after it was built. Have you guys been able to catch up with any other tenants, or was she the only one? Uh, just her and her family were the only one. I have, We did get the names of other people who lived in the home, but uh, the trail got cold on how to reach them. I found her on Facebook by just Googling her name, and I uh, was lucky to uh, find her on it. But when I Googled the other's um, name, uh, came up dead end, as well as in and around the state of Washington or whatever. I couldn't find anybody remotely close to their names. So let's go back to some of these experiences. You you touched on it briefly earlier. Uh, so you start having these writings on the wall, the 666s and, <clears throat> and stuff like that. Um, when did this start? How often was it an occurrence? Um, the writings, I would say, started in probably June, July of 2012. I mean, of 2014. Um, probably late summer of 2014. And once it's... The interesting things about these events is once it happens once, it happens regularly, and it sort of joins the club of all the other activity that's happening. Example would be, okay, first we got loud bangs. That would go on for a few weeks of just loud bangs. Then you got loud bangs and Tuesday night, loud bang, flower pot gets thrown. Wednesday night, you got loud bang and flower pot gets thrown, as you do on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, for a series of days. 
a new activity gets added to that activity of loud bang, flower pot gets thrown, and wall writing, as an example. Then it, that happens daily. And like I said, you, you come home, house is upside down, it looks like a tornado F5 twister ran a sack your home vandalized it we got 80 security that's not even trip by the way it's still armed and you get into your office and these wall writings and you know the first time we removed the the wall writing because it was the sage ass we just used hot water and soap that's relatively easy to clean um a few weeks after that the guys the portrait guys gets a little bit more deliberate it said aha well I'm going to write on something else or use something else that's going to be a little bit harder to clean and therefore it's using paint. Not paint that I own. I don't know where it's getting this paint from, but it's using it. So now I have to go out and buy paint, buy primer to paint over the wall markings that it did. Mind you, it's watching me do this only to repaint over what I did 24 to 48 hours later. So one of the, uh, we've got the 666 that was a regular there, but there was another symbol that was more of a, like a Native American death sign. Does, when did that start appearing? Uh, that one started a few, about a week before um, Halloween of 2014. I probably want to say middle of October was the first instance. That's called the Upside Down Man, and you're right, that... Um, there's many different elements to this to this case, and one of the familiar themes that keeps popping up is the Native American element because that in itself is a Native American symbol, okay? Um, and when we found that out, it's very easy to determine what that means. It means a man has died or a man is about to die. That's what that symbol implies. So we, get, we started getting that in the middle of October... And then again on Halloween weekend, and again in November around Thanksgiving and Christmas time. Uh, but each one instance that it would happen, the first time it drew it, it drew it on one wall. I think it was behind a computer monitor. Uh, the second time it drew it on two walls. Third time, four walls. Uh, fourth and fifth time, four walls and a ceiling. Then it's just repetitious over and over and over and over. But yeah, that, that, that was one of the things that kept coming back to because other Portuguese cases, demonic cases, malevolent cases speak of spirits writing 666 and, you know, all that stuff, uh, upside down crosses. But I could find nothing on the internet, nothing in the books about an upside down man. And that made me think there must be some sort of Native American co component because I didn't know what that was for the first couple of weeks uh, of it being drawn. I knew it wasn't good, but I didn't know what it was until finally one day I was just bored at my computer and I just typed in upside down man and hit Google images and came to some Native American pages where bam, that's what it was. Wow. God bless Google. <laughs> yeah, Google's your friend. Yeah. Is that... Good information and bad information. And bad information, Portuguese, yeah, they don't like. So we're talking to Keith Lunder. He's the author of uh, The Bothell Hell House. It, it's uh, a hill that he actually lived 
and he's telling us the story. Uh, obviously, they can get the book. Uh, Amazon, it's it's out right now, correct, Keith? Yeah, the, uh, the paperback is out on Amazon. Um, yeah, the Bothell Hell House, the Portuguese of Washington State is the subtitle. Um, when individuals, when they go, you know, look at the book on Amazon and feel free to, they can go comb through the pages. What they're going to see, and, and I don't know if other paranormal books have done this before, is I included a lot of this. It's the book, I want the book to be interactive with the reader. Um, I want the reader to get a glimpse of our world. So as you get deeper into the book, you're going to start from May 2012. You're going to go all the way up to about May or June of 2016. And you're going to see evidence because I've included videos, audio, uh, EVP, links and all that on the chapter within the timeline of when events occurred. So if you get to chapter 27, that's talking about the, the hallway uh, wall banging while we were asleep there is a video of that because I put a tripod in the hallway that night and that tripod did capture that moment startled us half to death and you'll you'll hear and see that in the video you'll hear me snoring you'll hear us talking and deliberating in bed because we don't know we've just been awakened up by a loud bang and we don't know what it was and we come out of the bedroom picking our heads like what the heck was that so all that goes in a timeline um in the book and like i say it, it goes from year uh 2012 to 2016 now keith what i've heard you mention a bunch on here is poltergeist most people if they do the googling on here they're going to see that a lot of people call this the demon house of seattle or the seattle demon house or some derivative yeah. of that now, you had some situations involving Bibles in this yeah. house that I am assuming is what kind of started twisting this more towards demonic than poltergeist. Can you explain what's went on in your house when it concerns Bibles? Yeah, and um, it, it did. And, and that's probably one of the... That got me and Tina in a lot of trouble. And it was not by our own choosing. That one I'm going to have to pin on certain aspects of the paranormal community because I'm pretty sure you're more aware than me that there's there's a fascination with the word demon you know it's just Hollywood has taken that word and really popularized made it popular I'm not saying that those instances don't happen I, I know they do I'm pretty sure our house had some of that as well but when we started reporting the 666 wall writings and the Bibles catching fire People went to the leap of, oh my God, you got the, you got Lucifer in your house, without even stepping foot in our house first. Now, me and Tina, you know, nobody likes six 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 written on our walls, but that didn't scare me and Tina the six 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 stuff. Um, I understand and, and understand the, the fundamental and the origin of the number six six six, and I know the spirit when they wrote that then and there, it was trying to get a rise, a negative rise out of Mantina. It was trying to invoke fear. Um, I also know, looking back, hindsight being 2020, that the reason the Bibles were catching fire is we were putting them out, like like I said, we're, we're being advised to display them openly and put them out and read from them, go to bed and uh, put them by our bedside and by the coffee table or whatnot. 
and the spirit would take these and, and you know, they catch on fire. And once again, it's to invoke fear. But these Bibles were brought out and put out. And there are other document cases where Portuguese do similar things to Bibles. Now, um, I've had other Bible. I'm mean, having other books in my house that have been thrown and torn to shreds. None have been burnt, mind you, but they've been damaged and flown across the room. Uh, so the Bible is one of the first books to be treated that way. Um, what I understand about Portuguese, and I'm using my own experience and combining it with what I read, is Portuguese. They're almost like they don't like to be told what to do. They don't like ultimatums or they want to be the big kid on campus. And one does themselves credit, meaning me and a future house occupants. And I hope nobody ever lives through this, but should you ever, um, one does themselves credit if they understand what a Portuguese is, because you can make a situation worse, but ignorance is bliss. And a Portuguese knows that it knows we know nothing about it. So, yeah, so that aspect, and going back to the popular phrase of Demon House and Demon in Seattle, you know, um, we never gave our experience that title. Um, when Ghost Adventures came in November of 2014 and the episode aired February of 2015, they named the show Demons in Seattle, all because of some Bibles burning and wall markings of 666. Portuguese has been writing 666 for centuries on walls. And Portuguese have been burning Bibles for centuries. Um, but you, you get the Hollywood angle. You get the attention of where we're at now and the paranormal of if you put a, a demon on it, it's going to draw a lot of attention, create a lot of drama, you know, and, you know, the priest is going to walk in and throw some holy water on there and it's going to save the day. And, yeah, so... Um, yeah, I, I spent a lot of chapters in my book uh, trying to write that wrong. I'm not going to lie to you, though. I mean, just hearing the 666 and, and the Bibles burning and all that, I, I probably, just in my mind, would have automatically thought the exact same thing. Yeah. It's, 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 and the, the guy knows that because, once again, it's playing on what we grew up with. I mean, the first Bible that caught fire in our house caught fire at 1.34 a.m. in the morning. We were asleep. You wake up to a fire alarm in your house, Jerry. you like, we all have that fear when we live in homes of a fire, let alone while we're sleeping. And you hear a fire alarm go off, pitch black. You open up your bedroom door, and there is a book on the floor that's on fire. And you close it. Oh, my God, it's a Bible. And to make matters worse, it's a Bible that was missing over a year ago. So, yeah, you think, this is Satan, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Satan, Satan doesn't walk through here, you know? Because it's playing on those fears that we grew up with, and so you overcompensate. So, yeah, we got on the horn. I'm calling the Seattle Parish. I'm calling. I'm trying to get Rome on the phone. I'm trying to get the Pope on the line one. My girlfriend's frantic. We're trying to get all the big guns here, and nobody's responding, so we're just going to improvise. You know, so I'm buying a gallon of holy water off Amazon and I'm spraying the rooms and I'm doing all this stuff. And yeah, and there, I mean, these, I mean, there's a thin line between, I mean, very thin line, almost a dotted line between poltergeist and demonic activity. 
it's real hard to differentiate which one is which. Uh, I still can't differentiate because some of the things I'm talking about the shadow figures, uh, creatures that I saw roaming through our hallway, those are not poltergeists. But I do know there's a dotted line between geist and malevolent evil spirit, and I think they both do each other's bidding. Where you see one, you see the other. So, so yeah, yeah. Those. I mean, you you think all of that? I mean. We've seen it all. We're going to get into ghost adventures here in a little bit, but what I want to go to now is where do you go from this point? Who who was able? Who did you reach out to that was able to try to give you some help or was willing to at least try to help? Uh, well, there's three um, fundamental people that I that come to mind that that were sincere and tried to help. And interesting enough. They, they came after Ghost Adventures. And the reason why they came, I'll talk about the U.S. team that came after, is they saw the episode and they reached out to me. And I was just, at that time, I was fed up with any paranormal team whatsoever. Because I left a bad taste in my mouth. It cost me my girlfriend. It cost me my relationship. And um, I was just about ready just to get up out of here and just call it quits. But... I always said to myself, it would be good to leave this house in better condition than when I found it, but it doesn't look like it's going to work out that way. Um, and then a team reached out to me, and they was like, hey, dude, we just want to come in and document the evidence. Um, it sounds like what you got is the real deal. Um, nothing gets past your nose. Nothing gets released to the public that doesn't go past your nose as far as okay. Um, let us observe you let's let's we want, we want a house monitor to you for a year i'm like what yeah we're just going to house monitor to you because um if you let the epitaph be written right now this is all going to go by the wayside so it was uh nikki novell uh who led that team and uh, they carried that investigation for a year but as i'm reading i'm reading more about the word portuguese and there's a word that's associated with portuguese and it's parapsychology or parapsychologists. And I'm reading about all these parapsychologists in the U.S. and in the U.K. And they got these books about, they're books about what we live through. So I started emailing them, sending them photos and videos. And I got the attention of uh, the uh, parapsychologist Steve Mara in the U.K. And uh, I sent him my video and evidence. And he was dumbfounded. He'd never seen a house this active before so there's a process to where he had to filter me and vet me that lasted about three months being vetted um and then they came over and then what nikki and him and don phillips did that no other team ever did and, I, and trust me i've had a lot of teams in my house jerry i'm talking about local teams teams that live in my city <laughs> okay <laughs> they lived in the house meaning nikki and steve mara and don phillips no other team here has ever asked me. I didn't even know it was possible. I would have said yes, but my brain doesn't think that way. To live in the house, they did. Nick and them lived in the house for three weeks, almost a month. Steve Mary and Don Phillips lived in the house for two weeks. And both cup runneth over with evidence. And that, to me, those two or those two different teams both with their own investigative methods and techniques, but they were smart enough to realize you got to be on ground zero. You got to live there. 
and we, we, we want to live there. And we're not watching you, Keith. We're watching the house. And uh, their cup runneth over with evidence. You can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but there's a video that I think Nikki did of the Bible pages uh, pretty much turning Turn on it. command. Yep. <clears throat> yep. That was the last night they were there. Um, we had, we had a, they had a big day because they had caught a lot of evidence. I had went to bed and the goal was morning, take them to the airport. But as most investigators, they're going to work through the, through the night. And you're right. There's a video on my channel with um, Nikki and uh, Carissa. They're standing over the Bible and um, they're talking and they're, um, they showed me the video the next morning and you see the pages kind of moving kind of weird and if you listen you hear the atmospheric change in the house you hear pop pooms and pings and you capture or they capture they didn't hear it at the time but upon review captured two amazing EVPs amazing EVPs I mean there's always going to be somebody out there that's, ah, that's the wind or that's your breath moving the pages. And the only reason why we made that video public is because we know most people are not going to even hear the EVPs because they're going to just leap at the first page turn and say, oh, that's the wind. But I tell people, go back to those videos. We put the time step in there of Nikki says, can you turn these pages she says something to that effect and there's a male voice and it says it in its clearest day show me how to that just blew me away this it just says show me how to and there's another voice that says yes um nick and carissa got another evp doing something similar in my office where they was talking about the wall writings and i think it was carissa asked the question you know, she's talking to the air, of course. Did you write on this wall? And sure enough, upon review of the audio, the spirit was like, well, just look at it. Hmm. Clear as day, another male voice, just look at it. And those, to me, outweigh, you know, people are like, oh, man, the Bible's turning by itself. That's kind of cool. That's kind of demonic. That's kind of weird. That's kind of fake. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I get people are going to leap toward that, the Bible turning on it, but... Listen to that voice. You got to listen to that voice. Because when that voice says, show me how to, there's so much it's telling you, if you but knew. Because it's using energy around that room to turn those pages. And as you see, the more it's trying to turn those pages, you start hearing the pops and the pooms and the pings in the house. And Nikki and Carissa even call attention to it. You hear the bangs and stuff coming in the background because the spirit is using the energy because that's what they do. That's what me and Tina have lived with. When something's about to go off or when trouble's about to erupt, we're always, there's always precursors. We didn't know at the beginning, but you'll feel a fluctuation or a decrease in energy in the house. Sometimes you can have an abrupt power loss. Sometimes the lights will flicker. Sometimes you hear a pop or a ping, and then sure enough, something gets thrown because they're, they're they're pulling in the energy, and either the house is contracting or detracting. And uh, that video, yeah, that, that's a phenomenal video. 
You know, I, I feel I feel really bad for your fight in this because I've said I don't know how many times you're never really going to be able to prove there's anything paranormal because you've got people who believe and you got people who don't believe and the ones who don't believe it does yeah. if you show them video oh it was doctored if you show them and you know yeah. listen, listen to an EVP ah that could have been anything they're never going to believe no matter what proof you show them so it's a they're it's a lose lose situation never when people say well show me it on video I like if I was to show you it on video, you'd be like, well, photoshopped it. Exactly. Or you use wire or something. So, I mean, we live, we're, we're in a digital age now where anything could be duplicated and made to look real. I mean, you go see your nearest sci-fi movie, Tom Cruise is walking on air. <laughs> you know? But that's done in post-production. So I don't waste my time trying to chase and show you video. I just have to tell you, Hey, this is what it is. Like you said, there's some that will believe, some will not. But I'm not going to lose sleep over those who, who don't believe. Because you're right. Unless they're sitting next to me and the couch levitates in front of them, that's the only way they're going to believe. And then half of them are still not going to believe. Right. That's what I was thinking. Half of them still look, they're going to be looking for something underneath them. Yeah. Or... They're going to be like, oh, okay, I guess couches can fly. Okay. Yeah, they're not gonna believe. They're gonna think something, something. But yeah, and I never was like that, John. I, I was never. I was always fifty-fifty about the paranormal. I, I mean, I've had friends and growing up come to me and tell me their their ghost stories, and I would listen to it with intrigueness. But I never would disavow them outright, just call them outright liar or a hoaxing or whatever. Because, mind you, me and Tina, we've been doing this four years, and I mean, I'm not going on year six, year seven. And I'm not changing my story one bit, and I can't change my story one bit because I tell it like it happened. I can't dumb it down. I wish I could. Um, a lot of teams just thought it was too good to be true, the activity that we were reporting, but I can't dumb it down because then I'm lying. I can't tell you that happened if that didn't happen or soften it up because it, it wasn't softened up for us. You know, it, it wasn't. I mean, a poster caught fire in my office while I was taking a shower. I run out of my bathroom into the hallway, and something zoomed past me. It was invisible. It was thunderous. It stopped all the way down to the front door and opened up my front door and slammed it shut. I saw my front door open wide and slam shut while the fire alarms were going off and the smoke filled my house. Um, that happened. I can't, I can't dumb that down. I called 911 and the lady couldn't hear me. She said, sir, I cannot hear you. Your address is not coming up on my computer. Where are you? I'm like, my house is on fire. I need a fire truck here right away. She's like, sir, this has never happened before. You, I'm calling from a landline and she can't hear me. She can't hear me or get my address. So I tell people this. I'm like, y'all go settle this amongst yourselves, those who do the research, but um, I can't change the story. I can't alter it. That's that, That's how it went down. And I say this for last, for a very good reason, but the Ghost Adventures um, coming out filming ended up being a, a controversial situation. 
Tell me a little bit about how that came to be to begin with. How did they get involved? How did they reach out? Did they reach out to you about coming to the house? And then what happened in the aftermath uh, following the show? Yeah, so um, Ghost Adventures found me, or Dave Schrader found me. Um, Our house had been having two years plus of activity, finally caught the attention of the local news in Seattle. Uh, Elisa Jaffe, and there's a video, uh, you can Google her, where she's interviewing me, and she hears the loud bangs, and it frightens her. But upon the conclusion of her interview, she says, well, I know Dave Schrader. Uh, our, our affiliate office deals with Coast to Coast or Darkness Radar or whatever. Um, he liaison with Ghost Adventures. Um, they may want to come out here. And uh, Dave Schrader called me the next day. He called me, I think it was November 1st, right after Halloween. And uh, asked me maybe three or four questions, maybe 15 minutes on the phone. And then two or three weeks later, Ghost Adventures had came out. Um, and my mindset about Ghost Adventures that time, because I, I knew I never heard of Ghost Adventures. I knew I never I knew of them, but I knew of the Travel Channel. And then somebody said, "Oh, they're on the Travel Channel," and I love the Travel Channel. I, I watch stuff on Travel Channel, but not Ghost Adventures. But my mindset was, well, if, it, if they're if they're a team on Travel Channel, then sure enough, they might have some resources that might break this case wide open because they're on the travel time I and mean, they go all over the world investigating haunted places and maybe that upside down man might ring a bell to them but so ghost adventures came in and the whole format is we're going to conduct a week at your we're going to be a, a week at your house but a week doesn't mean zach and crew we a week means the production so they arrive monday and do the reenactment and all that stuff monday through wednesday uh, Zach and them show up, I think it was Wednesday, Thursday, or Thursday, Friday, and do some more reenactments and interviews and conduct their lockdown. Now, the episode is, is you know, everybody knows the episode, so you, you know, you, you know, everybody knows Ghost Adventures got no evidence, or they left with zero evidence. Well, what made our case controversial was the fact that, um, it was sort of construed by the episode that we found no evidence, but Tina is weird. <laughs> you know, that girl named Tina is weird. And if you see the very end, her and Zach have a, almost a face-to-face. And that's what people don't understand is the episode is made in a production room, okay? How that episode really happened was it's pitch black, Ghost Adventures are asking me and Tina to walk around the house and talk to the spirits. You see that in the show. But it's pitch black. And Tina's downstairs and Zach's downstairs. And I think I'm somewhere nearby. And I think Tina verbalizes, I smell burnt sage. She tells Zach, she tells me, she tells the camera people. And she's like, I smell burnt sage. Now, normally when me and Tina smell burnt sage, that means trouble is about to go down. All right. So Tina is walking around the kitchen, homing and using her nose as her guide because she can't see anything. And she's trying to locate the burnt sage. Now, Zach almost headbutts her because it's pitch black. They can't see each other. But there's a sage stick laying on the kitchen table because that sage stick was used to do one of the reenactments of the Bible catching fire 
in one of the reenactments of the sage stick catching fire. So one of the prop guys left a newly doused sage stick on the kitchen table that nobody was aware of. But we smell it. Tina leans in. She's got her nose right above it, and she almost bumps head with Zach. It looks kind of weird when you're in an infrared environment and it's only showing, you know, how your cat eyes look. And, right. And that. So it looks kind of spooky. But how that episode, I mean, how we are, I mean, when they almost headbutt and Zach jumped, he's like, oh, he was scary. Like, oh. And Tina, like, I mean, she cursed them, but she, she said it in a funny way. Said, Zach, stop acting like a chicken. Okay. And we all busted out laughing. We, we thought it was lighthearted because we found the sage stick. And two months later, we watched the episode, and we and we you know we're with our friends and family, and we're seeing this. Oh, it's about to go down, and then all of a sudden, Zach blurts out, "Oh, I was having a weird feeling with Tina and her energy, and da 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 da." And we were like, "Where did that come from?" You know. And then their press con, well, not their press con, but their interviews after the show and their Twitter and all that were like, hey, well, you know, we went there and didn't find nothing and da 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 da. Um, and then, so yeah, that, that, that made it, it, it sort of controversial. Um, and, and also, we never heard from them from the time of November to February because they did the lockdown. You, you know, you saw them walk us out. I got back to the house the next day, the house was empty, they were gone. And we didn't hear from them for two and a half months. We didn't hear from them about two days or three days before the episode aired. So we didn't know what they found or anything. When the world found out that Ghost Adventures found no evidence, that's when we found out. And we asked them. Trust me, I asked them. I asked them on day one, day two, day three, a month in. All I kept getting was, oh, we're still looking. We're still researching. We're still combing through the files. And lo and behold, the episode airs. And it was done, and it was done incorrectly in the sense of they didn't live in the house. Um, they conducted a lockdown at night. Um, those who buy my book or read my book will know once you re- read the book, ninety percent of the activity happened during the daytime. So, if you're going to investigate a house, you want to investigate it when the house is most active, and you know how paranormal shows like to make it all dark and everybody wear your black shirt and your black jeans and we're going to turn off all the lights and conduct a, a, an investigation using instruments. Well, they could have, they should have conducted the investigation during the daytime. And also, um, they should have sent us away. Um, even though we're not the agent per se, we are the house occupants. And if you send us away, you might be curtailing your own investigation and that's exactly what happened because we did have that. We, me and Tina had activity at the hotel while they were conducting their investigation at the house. Hmm. And you said they were only there like five hours, right, Zach and the gang? Five hours. Five hours of hardcore investigative. And I know that's not enough. No way. Not not, not that house. I suppose you guys or any spirit. Five hours is nothing as far as investigating. I've had teams spend 11 hours, 12, 14, 16, 18 hours, 34 hours, get massive amount of evidence. Five hours, I mean, I can tell my little nephew to be quiet for five hours if I, if I promise him right. <laughs> if I yeah. tell him I'm going to take him to the movie, he'll be he'll shut up for five hours and won't say nothing. Yeah. If we're going to see, if we're going to see Avengers or something, he won't say nothing. And that's what spirits are like. And 
most of the activity happens during the day. And they know all this because we told them that prior to them coming. I, I had documented the house so well and had files and folders and uh, audio and video telling them, hey, the activity's in the daytime, dude. It's in the daytime. I don't know about this. I mean, you, you talk about from 3 to 7 a.m., 3 to 8 a.m. in the morning, really? We're asleep. The most of the thing we get while we're sleeping is a bang. You know, if you want activity during the day and just put cameras around us, but, you know, they got a show to do, and it's, I guess it's show first, evidence second. So is it fair to say that, that you and Tina felt like after the show aired that it was, like you were kind of, made to look like you were either fakes or making it up or just flat out lying? Yeah, and, and Jerry, and, and just so you know that I was, this is not me being disgruntled, um, I was in denial of that for a while until people start coming to me, finding me on Gmail or YouTube and Twitter, and these are people who watched the show for years. They said like, they would swear up and down about Zach, and they got Zach back in T-shirts. And they were like, that was so out of character, Zach. They've never seen Ghost Adventures put the house occupants on the defensive the way they put you guys on the def- It's like y'all were on different teams. It's like they were there to do something. They had a bigger goal. Now, of course, if they would have found evidence, Zach would have put on a red cape and he'd been like, I'll save the day. But they had a, a, a second game plan to where if they don't find anything, they can't come out of here unscathed. They got to come out of here and say, hey, you see what? We can go places and conduct investigations and don't find evidence. Because up until that time, all the shows were batting a thousand. You know, and they were getting a lot of heat from paranormal teams because they would say, oh, you guys make it so easy. I make it so easy. Y'all, y'all find ghosts everywhere. Zach will find a ghost in a mailbox. And <laughs> it was just that way. And then now they came half cocked. Uh, very rushing, mind you. You watch the episode, it's very rushy, very stilted, and um, very unfamiliar with how to investigate poltergeists. And at that, they made us look as the fall guy because, I mean, I went back and watched some of Zach's earlier episodes, and you saw some of the questions he's asking me, like, why, wow, like, Zach, why is it so hard for you to believe a spirit wrote on my wall? I mean, why is that? You're a researcher. I've read five books on poltergeist already, and I don't even do this for a living. And that's the top two. Th- that's the second thing they do. I mean, why are we wrestling over what the spirit done to my office or trash? That's what poltergeist do. And it was just really being us, put us on a defensive, and Tina on a defensive. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's a fair assumption. It's not my assumption. It's, it's what others who are loyal to the show. And some even stopped watching the show afterwards because they never said, they said, we've never seen Ghost Adventures like that. And, um, yeah, you guys are just really um, put out there like that. That was, that, was, that was kind of weird for them and for us. How has this whole ordeal affected uh, your relationship with Tina? Um, sadly, we broke up. We, we, I mean, we, we fell out because of that. We broke up uh, four days after the episode aired. The episode, Tina's Betrayal, um, the interview that Dave Schrader and Zach gave uh, the night of the show, and the Twitter sphere, the blogosphere, and the social media, um, 
led into Tina more than it led into me. I didn't care what people were saying about me. I care what they said about my girlfriend. Because I was there, I know how the Sage thing went down. And at the time we were with four years going with this poltergeist, and it was just finally the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, because Tina never wanted Ghost Adventures in the house. She, she had, and in that regard, she had a better sixth sense than me. And uh, I said, "Well, let, they're from the Travel Channel. Let's just see what they can do." And what made it worse is they made her look worse than they made me. And so she was just, done. she was done with the house. She was done with the poacher guys. She was done with paranormal teams. Um, done with the church, the clergy, uh, the priests in the Bothell area. Uh, and all these people are, are explained in the book as to not returning our phone calls or showing up or showing up late or putting us on hold or giving us the runaround or paying hot potato. And then Ghost Adventures was the straw that broke the camel's back. And, um, yeah, I mean, we're friends, me and Tina. Um, but uh, no, that, that, that did it. You still live in the house? No, I moved out May of 2016. Keith, I can't tell you how fascinating of a story this is. I mean, it's. Um, I'm sorry that you had to go through it, but I'm glad to be able to hear the story from my side of it and not have to experience it like you did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tell everybody once. A, I'm sorry. Go, oh, no, I was going to just say, and that's, um, you know, as far as having a story to tell um, or a lessons learned, um, yeah, that's that's what I incorporated into the book of a couple moves into a house, me and Tina, uh, beautiful home, suburb of Seattle, and we were together two years prior to that. Um, you can't make this stuff up. You can't wish it. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, even though I don't have any. And therefore, these phenomena start outbreaking around you. And there's no really, there's no one book to go to as to how to deal with it. And yeah, it takes its toll on you. Um, of course, once you see it, you'll never be the same. I'll never be the same again as to the stuff I've seen, I've heard, the residuals, the the fallout, the aftermath. Um, but yeah, I try to incorporate that all in the book. Um I never thought in my wildest dreams that I'd be writing a book, let alone about this. You know, I thought I'd be writing some sort of IT book or <laughs> project management book or something, but okay. So I wrote this book, and I said, if I want to write this book, I'm going to tell it from me and Tina's perspective, and I'm going to give the reader a lot to chew on and to ponder on in regards to the story the ordeal, the people we encounter, good and bad, the silver linings, the dark cloud, and the evidence. There are evidence or pieces of evidence in the book that lead you to YouTube and various websites that the reader should pay attention to and listen to for themselves, and then make up your own mind. You know, I know there are people out there who've experienced similar or if not worse than me, so they're going to be like, yeah, I'm with that guy. But if there's anybody on the fence about this being real, read the book. I mean, read it, cruise through it. If you got a Kindle, get a chapter or whatever. It just, it's going to pull you in because it pulled us in. We were not ready for it. Obviously, we were not ready for it. 
and you're never ready for it. But um, that's my that's my only spill. Well, I can tell you that the book is absolutely fantastic. It uh, just we we barely scratched the surface tonight. There are so many details okay. in the book that you really need, and like you said, it's interactive. It'll it'll lead you to to YouTube sites and stuff like that, it, which is really cool. Like you said, that may be the only book I've seen that's like that. Um, you've got a documentary that you're working on too. Can you give some details on that? Yeah. So the. Um Steve Mara and Don Phillips, the guys from the UK who did come and live in the house, when they came to investigate, um, they came to record, gather evidence, and make a determination as to what type of activity were taking place. So in the course of filming everything, and in the course of just finding so much data and so much evidence, um, it just seems right to do a documentary on their investigation. The documentary is not the book. The book is me and Tina four years living in the house. The documentary is their two weeks investigating. It will start with me, probably a narration of me contacting them via Gmail and doing the phone interviews and the phone screen and whatnot, but it's really them conducting their two-week investigation. They made two trips to the house, once in January of 2016 and once in April of 2016. They stayed a week uh, both times. The second time they brought with them Nick Kyle. Nick Kyle is the president or former president of the uh, Scotland uh, parapsychology organization. It's like the UK's version of the SPR. Uh, he's Scotland's president or former president. So he came to vouch and make sure it was legit, the evidence they were comparing, compiling because they got so much. Um, they got over 450 EVPs uh, 85% of them Class A uh, upon their first vet first week in the house. Uh, they were able to see objects moving, uh, turn around and whatnot. Uh, they saw a ball go through a kitchen table. Steve, and these are parapsychologists who see this with their own eyes. So it was golden. I didn't have to do anything. And yeah, so now they got a documentary uh, coming out um, in mid-April. The documentary uh, will be out in mid-April. How to get access to the documentary all one has to do is go to americansupernatural.com americansupernatural.com um, or find it through my channel as well but um, yeah it's going to be an hour I think an hour 45 minute documentary of their event and they got photos dude they got photos of if you're if you're a believer or 50, 50, 50 believer of shadow images or creatures or whatever or things that lurk behind walls or hide behind door that's it they, they got it the tools they use to get it i mean they got it because this is what they do they they came prepared and they lived in the house and everything they got i've been reporting in the book three years or four years before their arrival so it was sort of for me a gleeful face to see them capture on audio and video stuff I could never capture with my equipment that they were able to capture because they've been doing this 35, 40 years and it still blew them away. Steve Mara, if you watch this, he has uh, two lectures on YouTube. Just Google Steve Lara Demons in Seattle and you'll see he has two hour long lectures and he's like, I've never seen anything like this. 
Can you tell everybody how they can get a hold of the book and tell them how they can get a hold of you on social media? Yeah, so the book is relatively easy. Uh, Amazon. Everybody knows Amazon, Amazon.com. Uh, you can either Google Keith Linder or you can just go to uh, Amazon and type in The Bothell Hell House um, and you'll find the book. Like I said, the paperback is out now. Kindle. Uh, will be out April uh, 15th. Um, that's the anniversary of me and Tina when we met in 2010. So that date's kind of special for me. So April 15th is that date when we met. We met on tax day on uh, 2010. So uh, the Kindle will be out on Amazon on that day. How you can get rid of me or get a hold of me is find me on uh, YouTube. Just Google uh, Keith.L or Keith Lunder. Um, but also I have my own website, um, just for, for, familiarity's sake, because people go by association. Uh, my website is demonsinseattle.com. Also there's links to my video as well as there a report section of both Nikki and Steve Mara's investigation. Are you talking about over, um, 50 to hundred pages of evident material on my website, uh, so you can get a hold of me there. And um, also in the book itself or my email address and website address. Keith, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your story. Best of luck with the book and uh, best of luck in the future, just in whatever you do, brother. Hey, thanks for having me. It was awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed conducting that interview. And uh, we will see you in a couple of days with our Robert the Doll reboot and also another fascinating uh, interview with John E.L. Tenney. Uh, you're going to love this guy if you haven't already uh, heard anything of his before. Uh, you will be a huge fan after you hear this. Thank you, guys, and uh, we love you so much. Thanks for being always in our corner, and we're glad to be able to do some extra for you on occasion like this. See you soon.